The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host today. I'm delighted to welcome back my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Excellent. Well, folks, Peter and I had a a chat, uh, as we always do, before and after the show last week. Um, And uh, as you know, Peter is an avid student of history, and he's read... Uh, the bulk of um, David Irving's books and David Irving has been a guest I'd like to have on I've never been able to get him I did do one show once um, where I played I think a video of his uh, as an audio on the show Um, but today what we're going to do is Peter is going to give some information in a show entitled The Real History You Can Find in the Books of David Irving so that being said Peter where would you like to start us off today? Well Uh, This goes back to 1987, I think it was. I was in Cape Town between missions across the border. It was time of the big war up in Angola and Southwest Africa. And I was doing Bible smuggling in Mozambique and in Angola and ministering in Zimbabwe and Zambia. So uh, I heard David Irving, the author, the historian, is coming to Cape Town. So I managed to actually sit in a couple of uh, lectures in a town hall in Cape Town where David Irving spoke to packed audiences. And I must say, I found him an absolutely fascinating lecturer. Got several of his books. The first lecture I heard of his was on Churchill's War. He had just brought out Churchill's War, 1987. And I was fascinated by it because, of course, I'd heard all the the greatest Englishmen, the man of the century, and saved uh, Britain and all of that sort of thing. And so... To hear an alternative perspective on Winston Churchill was was quite fascinating. Uh, shortly after that, I got hold of his uh, Destruction of Dresden book, which he'd written in 1963. In fact, that was his first book, and that was majorly shocking about the, the carpet bombing, saturation bombing, targeting of civilian populations, especially on Valentine's Day 1945 in Dresden, when the war was almost over and the Red Army was almost at the gates of Dresden. They were swollen with refugees. I went through Hitler's war later and actually heard lectures by uh, David Irving on uh, the gas chambers, on the Loiter report, on 
uh, Auschwitz and the Ernst Hundel trials. And so uh, in Cape Town, I had the opportunity on a number of occasions to hear him as a guest speaker as he was coming through Cape Town. And that was interesting. And each time I, I got more of his books, they were kind of hard to get in the average bookshops. So basically, you'd have to go to one of these uh, meetings to see them. And uh, then I came across his book on the war between the generals and Inside the Allied High Command was was the subtitle. That was actually quite a fascinating book because uh, in here you get a different perspective of how the generals were in many ways spending more time fighting one another than they were spending fighting uh, the, the the Germans. So 1981, his book uh, War Between the Generals, and um, I should actually start with Churchill's War, but uh, these are just some funny uh, comments from uh, the War Between the Generals, uh, maybe to start us off with some humor. So General George Patton uh, quotes about General Omar Bradley, who was his superior, a man of great mediocrity. Uh, <laughs> then a comment by General Omar Bradley about uh, General Sir uh, Bernard Montgomery, later Field Marshal Montgomery, under whom my father served, actually, in, in the Eighth Army in North Africa and Italy. So uh, General Omar Bradley, the U.S. general, said about Bernard Montgomery, a third-rate general. He never did anything or won any battle that any other general could not have won as well or better. And then uh, here's what uh, Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery said about Dwight Eisenhower, who's the chief of staff of the whole of the Allied command on the Western Front. If you want to end the war in a reasonable time, you will have to remove Ike's hand from the control of the land battle. So that's what Montgomery said about Eisenhower, that, uh, you know, he's going to take too long. Uh, what General Eisenhower said, Dwight Eisenhower, about Admiral Ernst King, one thing that might help win this war is to get someone to shoot Admiral King. He's the antithesis of cooperation, a deliberately rude person, which means he's a mental bully. So uh, how about that? The, um, the General Eisenhower uh, thought Admiral King should be shot. Uh, here's what a British general, Sir Alan Brooke, said about Eisenhower. Eisenhower's supposed to be running the land battle, but he's on the Gulf links at Reims, and he's entirely detached and taking practically no part in running of this war. And then we've got uh, a quote by General Dwight Eisenhower. If the unhelpful British attitude continues, then I will go home. So um, that's just a few uh, comments showing the incredible animosity between Patton and Eisenhower and Montgomery and de Gaulle and a whole lot of these other characters and Omar Bradley and oh my, the uh, not just uh, competitiveness and uh, the rivalry and envy and uh, uh, the uh, absolute malice uh, between many of these men. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, and at the end of it, they were all gathered together by Eisenhower just before uh, they were being demobilized at the end of the war, uh, urging that everyone edits their diaries, takes out all of these negative things. And actually, it's quite extraordinary that uh, the um, uh, outstanding historian David Irving unearthed so many of these de details and diaries from people who didn't scrub them enough. But basically, after the war, you had a whole lot of history being sanitized and brought in line with wartime propaganda to maintain morale after the war by covering up allied errors, excesses, dangers, war crimes, uh, uh, friendly fire, and so on. Uh, I remember my father making comments that uh, the uh, American Air Force, uh, which was the Army Air Corps at that stage, uh, was often called the American Luftwaffe because in North Africa, 
there were so many friendly fire cases where the Americans bombed the Eighth Army, and uh, they they regularly wiped out huge amounts of their allies or of their own troops. So that uh, the uh, the general word in the Eighth Army, according to my dad, now I'm departing from uh, David Irving's uh, books, but. Uh, he said, uh, if we saw the Italian Air Force in the sky, we didn't bother to dive for cover. If we saw the Luftwaffe, we dived for cover. If you saw the American Air Force, you definitely dived for cover. And uh, uh, an intriguing insight <laughs> on how it was with all of these um, uh, really extraordinary uh, generals who were actually, some of them, like General Patton, obviously very competent and capable, but many of the others, uh, honestly, the amount of propaganda that's covered up their incompetence and their backstabbing and treachery amongst one another, and also deliberate war crimes such as was uh, propagated by Eisenhower with German prisoners of war. Uh, but that's the war between the generals. Another of his books uh, is, of course, uh, the final battles uh, dealing with the Nuremberg War Tribunals. But I should probably just start with the destruction of Dresden, because this is the book that made David Irving famous. And what makes David Irving an extraordinary historian? And nobody's written more on the Second World War than David Irving. He's got to be the greatest authority on uh, the Second World War, uh, not just living at this moment, but probably ever. Uh, nobody's written more. But the thing that's so unique about David Irving's writings is he doesn't read books. He reads manuscripts, he reads diaries, he goes to primary source documents. He has met with the widows of the generals and of the uh, and, and the bodyguards of Adolf Hitler, and he's met with the secretaries of Hitler. He's gotten the personal diaries of huge, uh, wide, vast uh, amounts of uh, people. And uh, what also makes his work extraordinary, and that he says he doesn't quote other works uh, written by other authors. He quotes primary source documents. He goes to the files. He goes to the microfiche. He goes to the captured documents. He goes to the actual um, original source documents. And in this way, his book, avoid repeating many of the myths and lies and legends and propaganda and disinformation that's all part of wartime because during wartime there are ministries of disinformation ministries of propaganda and there's a lot of lies told during wartime and the trouble with the uh, lies told during wartime is they tend to get settled into textbooks in peacetime and before you know it people are learning as facts things that were simply a disinformation a campaign in order to undermine the morale of the enemy or to build up the morale of your own people or to suppress embarrassing information uh, that uh, one would rather uh, future generations don't know about how one carried out the war and so on. So David Irving is a primary source document historian, which puts him in a different league from most of the others who are generally actually quoting from others. And the other thing that's extraordinarily important about David Irving's war uh, history work on the Second World War is he learned German. He's mastered German. He actually uh, went to Germany and uh, worked uh, in the steel mills, which is a very hard work. And he learned German uh, so that he could study the original documents from Germany in their uh, actual original language. And as he discovered very quickly, not only was a lot of it being ignored, a lot of it was being misquoted. Much of it was being mistranslated. And there was, in fact, sometimes blatantly the opposite being said in uh, many respected books than what the source documents actually said. And, of course, a person who doesn't know German 
cannot really write a very effective history on Germany. All he can do is quote what English sources say about Germany, which could be a lot of disinformation, wartime propaganda or malicious uh, slander for all you know. And so in, in this sense, he's become a, a very remarkable source of a massive amount of information about the Second World War that most people don't know. And his first book, the, uh, which is The Destruction of Dresden, published in 1963, was a sensation. It was an international bestseller. It fueled the debate in the 1960s about the morality of area bombing, carpet bombing, strategic bombing, uh, bombing of civilian populations. And uh, it, it became the absolute um, authoritative uh, work on this. And interestingly, uh, after this, as people said, from the time that David Irving uh, wrote The um, Destruction of Dresden, he could do nothing wrong. And uh, he was uh, very popular, well uh, thought of, and people calling him the most uh, competent and accomplished historian of the Second World War. But that all ended in 1977 when he brought out Hitler's War. And he used the same principle of, and he'd spent 10 years studying for this, uh, going through primary source documents, meeting all the still alive people uh, who knew Adolf Hitler, getting hold of the the diaries of his secretaries and memoirs and so on and so forth. And uh, he uh, came out with something that did not agree with the general narrative. And uh, because it so upset so many of those court historians who wanted to just repeat the popular narrative, the Hollywood version, uh, uh, this, this caused a tremendous um, angst and uh, led to a character assassination campaign against him. And uh, when he came out with Churchill's war 10 years later, um, that uh, also upset many because Churchill had become some kind of living God and myth in uh, so much of, of our society. So David Irving, in all of his books, presents a wealth of suppressed information, and he shows shockingly unfamiliar portraits of events that we thought we knew because we'd seen the Hollywood film or seen some uh, History Channel so-called uh, documentary or uh, we actually believed our textbooks at school. But what we find is intrigues and there's no doubt that truth is more incredible than fiction. And the truth is always more interesting than fiction. And uh, uh, David Irving's picture on Churchill's War, uh, I, I want to come to in a moment, but let me just give a few quotes uh, and facts from his Destruction of Dresden book because this is the book that opened up uh, the whole realm that up till then most people were not aware of what German civilians had suffered as a result of Allied strategy. And this had somehow been airbrushed out of the history books. It had been whitewashed. It was ignored. And uh, the Germans were villains, uh, not victims. And we were uh, knights in shining armor with white hats who were on the side of the angels. And our people never You just... Dresden book. Yes, uh, yeah, can you, you hear me? Yeah, you just you dropped me? out. You said our people were, and then you just dropped out. So if you can go back to that point, please, right. Peter. Good. So between the 13th and the 15th of February, 1945, the war was almost over. The Red Army was almost at the gates of Dresden. Uh, Dresden was a frontline city in many ways, swollen with refugees, hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing the Red Army uh, that was on the Eastern Front approaching them. And so uh, here in, in Eastern Germany, uh, Dresden was uh, really, uh, um, in many ways, one massive hospital city swollen with refugees. 
And on the 13th of uh, February, 1945, 796 Lancasters, that's the four-engine bombers that could carry 14 tons apiece of, uh, of bombs, and nine de Havilland Mosquitoes, they dropped 1,478 tons of high explosives and another 1,182 tons of incendiary bombs, starting at 10.14 in the evening uh, till 10.22 in the evening. So in eight minutes, they dropped 1,478 tons of high explosive, 1,182 tons of incendiary bombs. And of course, the result was absolutely devastating. And the people are uh, fighting to put out the fires and helping people who are uh, killed and crippled and those who trapped and, and bombed out areas where they can't get out of the air raid shelters. And then suddenly, three hours later, another 1,800 tons of bombs were dropped by a second group of Lancasters, about 1,000 uh, strong. And the destruction of Dresden was so staggering. They'd staggered this in order to catch the rescue workers, the uh, ambulances, the fire brigade, and all of that who would be busy putting out the fires of the first bombing. And then they caught them in this, uh, people out. Nobody was expecting a second run immediately afterwards, uh, not on the same night. And so this wasn't just attacking a hospital city with 22 hospitals in it. This was a, a double attack. And the first official reports at, on Dresden and, of course, uh, David Irving's quoting from the original source of Neutron, described the bombing of Dresden as one of the most successful thousand bomber raids. Quoting, our pilots report there was very little flak. Well, actually, there was none. They were able to make careful and straight runs over the targets without bothering much about their defenses. Well, they didn't have to bother. There were no defenses. It was an open city. There was no military significance about uh, 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 Dresden at all. A terrific concentration of fires was started in the center of the city, reads the British report. The British described the raid as one of the most powerful blows promised by the Allies by Winston Churchill to Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union. And the Allied bombers who were involved in the firebombing of Dresden later recalled the sense of shame they felt when they had no anti-aircraft fire, no night fighters opposing the bombing of the city. Uh, and here they're bombing a city and they're not even being shot back at. And there was a lot of... Uh, people even at the time who questioned the morality of this and described it as being a war crime. And there was uh, absolute shock from neutral countries like Sweden and Switzerland, pointing out in the front page that Dresden was one large hospital city swollen with refugees escaping the advancing Red Army, that the main railway station on the outskirts of town was unaffected by the bombing, which targeted the residential section of town. 22 hospitals were destroyed in Dresden, all of them overflowing. And at the time, one British commentator said, who the devil is going to get anything out of this? We contribute the bombs and the machines and the crews who don't return from these raids. The Dresdners themselves don't get anything out of it naturally. The only ones who look like they're going to benefit are the Russians. They get Dresden at our expense. I don't see any reason why we should go and kill people for the benefit of the Soviets alone, do you? So that was a British commentator at the time in February 19. 45. And there's an associate press radio dispatch sent out from Paris, broadcast throughout the United States, describing this event, the deliberate terror bombing of German population centers carried out by heavy bombers of the Allied Air Forces on residential sections of Dresden with unprecedented day and night assaults on the refugee crowded city with civilians fleeing the red tide in the east. Now, 
The Americans had traditionally viewed with great suspicion the RAF Bomber Command strategy of bombing cities. The Americans also refused to do night bombings, believing that was dishonest, it was not honorable. And so they were doing daytime bombing and they were concentrating more on factories and war targets. But the Americans got sucked into, for example, the bombing of Ham Hamburg. The Americans bombed by day, the British by night for 10 days. And here with uh, Dresden, after the two devastating uh, thousand bomber raids by the British on the, uh, on the night of the 13th into the 14th of, of uh, February, the Americans came with a thousand bomber raid in the daytime of what was then the 14th. So this is now uh, Valentine's Day. And the American Valentine gift was not only to bomb the civilians in, in the shattered uh, city of Dresden, uh, but to even have their uh, Mustang fighters going down and machine gunning the civilians, machine gunning the refugees with their carts that they're pushing these wheelbarrows and carts. Uh, and they, they literally targeted the civilians on the ground and the bomber crews came in low so that the machine gunners could machine gun the people. And Dresden was an open city. It had no military significance. It had no industries. It was basically a cultural and hospital city. And, uh, so the targeting of it was, was absolutely shocking. And at the time, um, it, it's interesting that there were Americans writing at the time that to target a German city, uh, while the entire German Air Force is concentrated in the Eastern Front to combat the Red Army's offensive, which threatened to destroy not just Germany, but all of Europe, the targeting of civilian centers in Germany seemed exceptional cowardice. Now that's a quote, direct quote, exceptional cowardice at, from the time uh, there were people saying that at that moment. And it explains why the history books and the propaganda afterwards went to try and demonize the targeted country uh, to distract people from the atrocities that allies had used, such as this. And this Associated Press report broadcast by radio throughout the United States, uh, there were people absolutely horrified and started to ask, is the US Air Force actually now bombing civilian targets, which of course they've been doing for years. But General Eisenhower and General uh, Henry Arnold um, cabled General Spatz to clarify that the U.S. Army Air Force was only targeting military objectives, question mark, and not engaging in area bombing of cities, which they knew full well they were doing. It was just for public consumption. And General Carl Spatz gave an ambiguous, dishonest assurance that the U.S. Army Air Force only attacked military objectives, which, of course, was blatantly not true. This was just propaganda at the time. And so the American historian, Professor Henry Elmer Barnes wrote, it was the indiscriminate bombing of civilians by the so-called strategic air forces during the Second World War, which culminated in the destruction of Dresden, a wholly non-military objective in February 1945, that completely pulverized the code of civilized warfare and returned the treatment of military opponents and civilians to the level of the primal warfare that had existed and prevailed amongst the savages, the Assyrians and the medieval Mongols. On the base of the most authoritative British sources, Mr. Veal demonstrates clearly it was the British, not the Germans, who introduced indiscriminate strategic bombing, despite all the efforts of Hitler to avert this reversion to barbarous practices. And this brings me straight into David Irving's Churchill's War, which was the first of his books that I read and the first of his lectures that I heard. And uh, I was actually quite horrified uh, to learn and, and fascinated too, because it's it's um, an incredible uh, expose and 
uh, Churchill's War, well, it comes in, in two uh, volumes, effectively. The first part, over 660 pages, volume one of Churchill's War is the struggle for power. And uh, uh, what we learn about uh, Winston Churchill is actually uh, quite disturbing, uh, because um, in, in here we, we learn that uh, Winston Churchill was, in fact, uh, quite a savage uh, individual in, in how he dealt with his opponents. And uh, uh, David Irving's uh, very um, uh, incredibly uh, eye-opening account of uh, Churchill shows that here is Winston Churchill, who, when he came to, to power um, originally in Britain in 1910 uh, as, as First Lord's Admiralty, uh, Britain was at the apex of its power. It was the greatest em empire possible. And so the British Empire was at the most magnificent uh, power in the world, one quarter of the world's population and territory under its direct control. But by the time Winston Churchill had finished um, his political career in 1955, uh, Britain was basically a third-rate power, uh, bankrupt, impoverished, and its empire disappeared. And uh, it is well said by David Irving that nobody was more responsible for the destruction of Britain uh, then uh, Churchill. And it, Winston Churchill is a man who destroyed two empires, one of them the enemies and the other his own. And uh, in here, he shows that Winston Churchill, uh, quite a complex person, uh, but uh, Winston Churchill was a, uh, a person who was regularly drunk, uh, who was uh, regularly uh, reveling in the destruction uh, uh, of civilians. Uh, and uh, he's a hard-drinking, cynical, brutal, deceitful, and callous individual. And, and the, the uh, details on his family uh, relations and on his wartime cabinet, and from the diaries of Anthony Eden and uh, Lord Cunningham and Alan Brooke and uh, Cadogan and Martin and others, we see a prime minister, uh, uh, Winston Churchill, rejoicing in death, rejoicing in slaying, intoxicated by the roar of cannon, exhilarated by his own graphic oratory, more excited about how his uh, uh, speeches would come over than, than whether they reflected reality or the truth. And uh, in fact, uh, he said, I, I'm not at all concerned with, with the truth of what I say, but I am concerned about the impression it leaves in the minds of the hearers. Uh, so uh, Winston Churchill... Of course, we knew about Winston Churchill somewhat in South Africa because he made his name as the man who escaped from a Boer prison during the Anglo-Boer War. And uh, the story in South Africa is, well, uh, the reason why he escaped is because he was asked to give his word as an English gentleman that he wouldn't try to escape. So they didn't bother to guard him because he had given his word and they thought that an English gentleman's word was his bond. But obviously, Winston Churchill uh, was not such a gentleman at all. And uh, what we learned here in this is that Winston Churchill was really a warmonger. Uh, when you get into his early books uh, that Winston Churchill wrote, when he is in Afghanistan on Afghan campaign, he writes, uh, he is meant to be a journalist uh, attached to the cavalry. And yet he speaks with great excitement about when we came into the village, uh, we killed everything, man, woman, child, not a chicken survived, there wasn't a person alive. We, by the time we left there, uh, they were all dead. And uh, and he doesn't put this in a negative sense. He, he revels in it, that he took part in wiping out an entire village in Afghanistan, which 
it would be a war crime by today's definitions, and it probably would have been a war crime by uh, 1890s definitions too. He wrote during the Anglo-Boer War of his approval of Kissinger's, uh, uh, I should say, uh, Lord Kitchener's scorched earth campaign concentration camp policies. And, and he seemed uh, not just oblivious, but he seemed uh, to gloat about the destruction of the Boer farms, the poisoning of the wells, the slaughtering of the cattle and sheep and all their livestock, and the uh, uh, dynamiting of their farms and their wells, and putting the women and children in concentration camps where a quarter died each year, so that in four years they'd all be dead. And the concentration camps in two years killed about half of all the women and children that had been interned there. And uh, in this savage destruction, which destroyed 30,000 farms and destroyed millions of uh, cattle and sheep and uh, other livestock, uh, just in scorched earth campaign, brutal, savage destruction in the Anglo-Boer War, Winston Churchill was totally happy with. And, and uh, he, uh, when he was the... Um, Secretary of um, the Colonies, he drew the map in the Middle East, which denied Kurdistan to the Kurds and uh, gave uh, Kuwait, the oil-rich part of Kuwait, separate that from Iraq. And he, he drew up the, the map so that it represents what is now. And when the millions of Kurds saw that they were being denied their own country and they protested, he ordered the Royal Air Force to bomb them with, with mustard gas. And the, the kind of callousness for life uh, in uh, Churchill just is quite disturbing. What also comes out is a man who was very, um, how do we put it, uh, he he lived on his vices. He was a hard-drinking, hard-smoking, hard-gambling uh, person who uh, was happy to remain in bed till about 11 or 12 and then have a long, luxurious bath while his secretary had to take dictation from him while he had a full English breakfast uh, with brandies and sodas and whiskies and what have you in his bath puffing his cigar you just dropped out after you said uh, yes. cigar peter but um, it's an right. ideal time so, for me to just jump in and i think you told us on a previous show that churchill and stalin once had a 27 course meal have i got the figure right yes that, that's correct so so Church, churchill was was a quite quite a vice-saturated uh, person. But uh, the problem in this is that early on in uh, Churchill's uh, political uh, career, he saw the dangers of Bolshevism and the Bolshevik Revolution. He wrote in 1919 that uh, the Bolshevik was a plague bacillus, the greatest threat to Western civilization. And uh, all of that changed about 1936. And uh, David Irving deals with this in his Churchill's War uh, dealing with the focus group. And the interesting point is that uh, what happened with uh, uh, Churchill is he got so bankrupted by his uh, indolent lifestyle. And uh, to get money, he went into all sorts of things, such as faking paintings. He uh, put Charles Monet um, uh, signatures on uh, his own works. And uh, he, this this was even used by Franklin Delano Roosevelt when he discovered it. Uh, to be able to bring him uh, to heal and to control him more because he knew about his forgeries and art. Uh, he did a lot of uh, different interesting things that are um, ethically questionable. 
But at one point, he looked like he was finished, uh, finished in every way, not just politically, but economically. Uh, Churchill was a has-been. He was in the wilderness. He had no political office. Uh, he was uh, co completely out in the wilderness. And 1936, he has uh, gotten so bankrupt that he's going to lose his estate. He's going to lose just about everything. And in stepped a group of about 12 people called the Focus, the Focus Group. And there was a very shadowy banker, Strakos, who uh, came in and... Uh, provided uh, for settling all of Churchill's debts and provided him with enough money to live the kind of um, extravagant lifestyle he was used to. And from 1936, from the time the focus group came in to help focus Churchill's career, his speeches and his policies, they not only salvaged him from insolvency and debt, uh, but they, they changed his whole orientation from, from being someone who's warning about the dangers of Bolshevism and communism. He suddenly took up an entirely new mission. Under the influence of Strakos and the focus group, he now made Germany and particularly the nationalists and Adolf Hitler as the primary focus of all of his energies and his invective and his considerable oratory powers. And it's fascinating to see how Churchill, after 1936, how the focus group, literally, they brought this man up. But uh, David Irving digs out even more interesting things. He digs out facts that the Polish, according to Polish records, they were providing vast amounts of money, vast amounts of money to Churchill to advocate for Poland's political case. So he is actually a paid agent of a foreign power. But even more than that, the Czechoslovakian government was paying him even more vast money. You know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bribes. Uh, I don't know what else you can call it. Uh, when you are getting money from foreign intelligence agencies, in order to espouse a certain viewpoint. And so uh, there was Churchill happily taking money uh, from uh, bankers in order to uh, change his uh, focus and his speeches. And we see how he is happy to take money from foreign intelligence services such as Poland and Czechoslovakia. So very interesting perspective. Now, the picture we've often got is of this brave um, man staying in London during the Blitz, and David Irving blows that out the water and shows that uh, because of the Enigma uh, code decrypts, Winston Churchill as Prime Minister knew ahead of time what the German Luftwaffe's plans were and what their targets were for that day or night, and so he made sure that he was always out of um, London when the bombing took place, and he had come back the next day and tour the bombed out area with his bulldog expression and a cigar in his mouth and on his uh, walking cane and uh, uh, lots of pictures were taken and the impression was that he had been there uh, with them under the bombs and uh, in fact David Irving's got detailed cases of his deception where for example the information was that they were um, uh, the Luftwaffe was heading for London and so he gets his driver, goes out the back door, gets in the vehicle, and they're going to head off to his country home to be out of London for the bombing. And then as he's in the car about to leave, a um, RAF representative brings him an update. And it turned out, no, the uh, London was not the target for that night. It was uh, another area. I think it was Coventry. And so he ordered the, the driver to stop. He went back in. And uh, uh, with this telegram in his hand, he's giving the false impression of saying, so we hear that the, the Bosch are going to be bombing us tonight. Well, uh, I'm going to stand here and uh, shake my fist at them as they come overhead. And, uh, all absolutely um, eyewash, complete uh, 
act uh, in order a, a facade and a pantomime in order to bolster his impression. So Churchill was not a man of integrity. He wasn't a man of honesty. And uh, he was a man who could be bought and who could change his whole political orientation just for money so that you have the absolutely unbelievably ridiculous position where uh, Churchill actually, in his first meeting with Stalin, asks Stalin if he can forgive him for all the horrible things he said and wrote about him uh, years before, uh, which is unbelievable. Why would you apologize to the worst mass murderer in the history of mankind anyway? But Stalin's response is even more bizarre. It was, uh, it's not for me to forgive, it's for God to forgive. <laughs> Here's this atheist mass murdering persecutor of the church talking about God uh, is the only one he can forgive. Uh, so it's it's unconscionable, the, the kind of nonsense that church was involved in. Well, the other thing that David Irving brings out, which is very fascinating, is that Churchill began the bombing war. So right from the beginning, he was a member of the cabinet. He is, in fact, uh, the, the sea lord and uh, lord of admiralty. And, of course, at the beginning, beginning of the war, it was uh, Chamberlain, uh, Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of Britain, the elected prime minister. And uh, at, uh, Neville Chamberlain directly uh, opposed Churchill's idea of bombing uh, Germany and bombing the cities and so on. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Churchill made sure that they bombed the uh, naval ports and uh, anything that they could reach of Germany from right from the beginning. And uh, Churchill, of course, uh, launched this uh, hideously uh, disastrous uh, campaign on Norway, which Germany got wind of, and uh, they preempted the British takeover of Norway, which was meant to prevent Germany getting the steel and iron that they needed from Sweden, which had to be transported through Norvik. Uh, the, uh, down the coast of Norway. And uh, so recognizing um, this, this was such a disaster. And uh, because the Wehrmacht and Luftwaffe and Kriegsmarine won in Norway and uh, the Royal Navy uh, completely failed, there was, uh, uh, you would expect that the man responsible for this would be fired and uh, yet, uh, or would resign. Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, who'd just done a Gallipoli again, which was the biggest catastrophe of the Royal Navy in the First World War. Uh, here he, uh, people were saying, you know, here's Churchill again, Winston's off uh, on his uh, impossible campaigns again, Don Quixote type charging the windmill, and uh, he's done another Gallipoli on us. And yet, Neville Chamberlain, as the principal man he was, he resigned as prime minister because of this failure of the Norwegian campaign. And Lo and behold, the man who should have been fired or resigned, Winston Churchill, becomes the new prime minister, which is intriguing because Winston Churchill was not elected prime minister, not for his first uh, uh, tour. Uh, he, got re he got elected back in, in 1950 after war on his propaganda war record, so-called. But uh, in 1940, he became uh, the prime minister by default because while Neville Chamberlain wanted Lord Halifax to take the position, the foreign minister, Lord Halifax was not willing, and basically nobody wanted the job of prime minister when Britain was losing on every front, and uh, the prime minister who would be associated with us, their career would be finished <laughs> for life. And so nobody wanted uh, to take over the helm of an obviously sinking ship and uh, a lost war and lost cause. And at this precise moment, the only person willing to take the job was Winston Churchill. And so he got into power 
by basically destroying the credibility of his prime minister with this disastrous Norwegian campaign, which was a complete failure from the British perspective. So absolutely amazing when you look at this and think these are the democracies and Britain's prime minister was not elected and Stalin, of course, was not elected. And for that matter, uh, Winston Churchill's best friend in South Africa, Jan Smuts, he wasn't elected either. Uh, Jan Smuts in South Africa uh, had just lost five elections in a row in the previous 15 odd years. And uh, uh, we had a very popular prime minister in South Africa in 1939. That was uh, uh, Prime Minister General Judge James Barry Herzog. And, and Prime Minister Herzog refused to declare war. He said, I will not declare war on our friend Germany uh, on behalf of our enemy Britain. We have not forgotten what they did to us with the concentration camps in Scorched Earth in the Second World War, in, in the anglo boer War. And this war is not our war. And in fact, it's not even Britain's war. And uh, the Union Defence Force is purely for defensive purposes. And we're not getting involved in this European war. And Smuts did a coup d'etat in South Africa, no referendum, no parliamentary vote. Uh, he seized power, kicked out our, our prime minister who had been elected five terms in a row, uh, undefeated, um, and he uh, effectively ran the country for the next nine years without an election. Uh, and so uh, we had General Smuts running South Africa, which is meant to be one of the democracies, but he's unelected. And one of the first things he's asked to do by Winston Churchill is take all the gold in South Africa, put it uh, on a American warship, the Quincy in Simonstown, in secret, in dark at night, and ship all the gold above ground, 20 million pounds worth, uh, uh, to the United States of America uh, to start the process of Lend-Lease. And that wasn't just for Britain, it was Lend-Lease right from the beginning was shipping weapons to Russia as well uh, from the United States, well before Pearl Harbor, well before the uh, the Americans were involved in the war officially, but they were unofficially, secretly, uh, illegally by American law, sending weapons which South African gold was paying for, which South Africans didn't even know about because it hadn't even been discussed in Parliament and was not being done openly. And this was because Churchill had requested it. Now, Churchill's not elected prime minister in Britain. Smuts isn't elected prime minister in South Africa. For that matter, General de Gaulle, nobody made him uh, uh, who elected him prime minister of the free French. And you could say the same about General Sikorsky for Poland, the head of Poland's government in exile. And Stalin, well, of course, no one elected him. Uh, only when the United States government comes in with FDR do you have actually someone who'd been elected in actual elections. But funny that they call us the democracies. Well, Winston Churchill from the beginning wanted a bombing campaign. And he was convinced that bombing was the way to win the war. And he said, uh, Fortress Europe has... Uh, no roof, and we can go in and we can bomb the cities. And so right from the beginning, Winston Churchill was convinced that our supreme effort must be to gain overwhelming mastery in air. The bombers alone can provide the means to victory. And so uh, he made this the highest goal. Even uh, as soon as he had the power, he was ordering bombing of cities in Germany. From, from May um, 1940, uh, Churchill started to send the American bombers to bomb cities, first of all, coastal cities and uh, on the West Ruhr and then uh, later even Berlin. So it's also noteworthy uh, that you learn from Churchill's war that it was not Germany who started the bombing of London. It was Churchill who started the bombing of Berlin to provoke the bombing of London, because not only was Britain losing the battle at that stage as 
the Luftwaffe was targeting the British airfields. But the um, the Germans were steadfastly not wanting to bomb London or any of the cities. And so to provoke them, he ordered time and again uh, massive bombing raids of Germany. Well, the first bombing of Berlin, nobody even got seriously injured, let alone killed. Uh, it wasn't very effective. And he kept ordering again and again. And in fact, the RAF were losing more men uh, in their planes getting shot down than they were even killing civilians on the ground. For the first several bombings of Berlin, it was not very effectively done. And because it was being done in summer, the uh, the daylight was very limited. And the distance had to travel from England to Berlin required these bombers to be flying in daytime over hostile territory, and they lost a lot of men. But even when the air vice marshal explained these things, Churchill was adamant, just chewing a cigar, you know, ordering them to bomb. And even when the uh, Royal Air Force uh, pointed out the danger that if we bomb Berlin, sir, you realize that that would be considered provocation to bomb London. And Churchill still went ahead. And it's quite clear when you look at the records and the original documents, it wasn't that we were bombed first. We started the bombing. We started, uh, and the bombing of, of, of Berlin was particularly uh, designed to provoke the bombing of London, and Churchill was so unpopular and so unsuccessful at that time, he had correctly surmised that if he could get London bombed by the Germans, he could... Peter, you dropped out again. You just said like um, if Churchill could get uh, London bombed by the Germans, he could, and then you dropped. So can you take it from there, please? Right. Yes. So the the whole... Air war was the major priority of Winston Churchill as Prime Minister of Britain. And he is also described as the most uh, micromanaging leader that Britain's probably ever had. And he was involved in so many of the details. And, for example, amongst the different things that Churchill uh, pushes for is to use uh, poison gas. He actually sends memos through to Royal Air Force. I want you to examine the idea of using poison gas very seriously. He says, I don't see what the squeamishness is amongst you people about using poison gas. We used it a lot in the First World War. What was wrong with it? Uh, it's a very effective way of killing people. And uh, that I want you to be using poison gas. And then he started, can we not be dropping anthrax down? Can we not destroy the whole agricultural economy of Germany by uh, dropping massive amounts of anthrax cakes all over the, the uh, rural parts of Germany? And uh, so he had the Royal Air Force uh, take a uh, an actual uh, island off Scotland, which they bombed. They they literally chose to to uh, bomb this, and to this day you cannot do anything on this island. It's it's total warfare. And um, having um, uh, tried this, uh, his air force he actually ordered them to begin using poison gas and anthrax on Germany, and the Royal Air Force put down their feet and just said no. We cannot do it. We will not do it. This is completely unacceptable. And so, uh, interesting, the prime minister was resisted by his own simply because uh, of uh, the fact that they just saw this is completely and utterly unethical and, and we, we can't justify it. So, um, Winston Churchill definitely went too far. And uh, uh, just one of the interesting points that are brought out uh, by David Irving is that 58,888 officers and men of RAF Bomber Command were killed in action. 
And of course, that's not counting the millions of civilians who died as a result of actions. But that was a huge loss. And just uh, if you think of the amount of people involved in bomber command, the bombing of cities in Germany, we now know, did not end the war. It did not shorten the war, but it did massively multiply the sufferings of the people on the ground. And uh, uh, Winston Churchill definitely takes a large amount of, if not the primary responsibility for all of this. Um, other things come out uh, in Churchill's war, including the fact that 40% of all the bombs dropped by Britain in 1940 failed to explode. 40%. I mean, the amount of duds. So it's like sending soldiers into battle with um, a dud uh, ammunition and <laughs> blanks. Um, you know, you have people fly all the way over there, taking all the risks, and uh, most of the bombs that drop uh, aren't even effective and uh, don't even explode. And some of them are still being dug out today uh, in, in cities like Berlin. So uh, it's a real indictment on uh, Winston Churchill when you see the callousness with which he regarded the lives of his own men, uh, of the Royal Navy, of the Air Force, of the Army, uh, what he regarded of the Allies. He had no problem with the bombing of huge amounts of French areas. It's pointed out that more French civilians died as a result of Royal Air Force and American Air Force bombing of France, uh, then uh, French died soldiers and civilians combined because of German action in the entire war. Uh, so the the callousness with which they bombed their own allies and uh, then again, his deciding to destroy the French fleet uh, when France was still officially Britain's ally in 1940, he uh, ordered the destruction of the French fleet uh, at anchor, uh, both in North Africa and on the Mediterranean, even though uh, those areas were under free France control. It was uh, Germany had made no move to attempt to take uh, any of the French uh, naval uh, uh, feats. In, in fact, when the German high command demanded that, uh, well, we must uh, request, uh, demand the French fleet, uh, Adolf Hitler said, we did not beat them on on sea, we beat them on land. We have no right to ask for any of the naval powers because we didn't have any naval engagements against France. And uh, they've still got an empire to, to protect and care for. So uh, interesting, they didn't make any move on it. But instead of Germany making a move on the French fleet, Britain decided to Copen, Copenhagen the fleet, which is what Churchill did. And so uh, the French Navy suffered more at the hands of the British than they suffered at the hands of the Germans. Uh, in the Second World War, which is also quite staggering. But I've just scratched some of the surface, but you can see uh, here um, how David Irving is quite a formidable researcher. And by unearthing original documents and going to primary source documents and understanding uh, the um, the local languages, especially in, in the case of uh, Germany, uh, in German. But he has also uh, worked on other languages. He's pulled things out of Polish archives. He's pulled things out of Czech archives. Uh, he's gotten out of Danish and uh, an amazing amount of research. And this is real history. When you are going to primary source documents and eyewitnesses, but it's not good history when we're just quoting from someone else who's quoting from someone else who's quoting from someone else who's got it probably from some wartime propaganda disinformation campaign. Uh, well, what does that prove? So I think it's so important that we revise our understanding of history in the light of evidence. And David Irving is certainly the premier historian uh, on the Second World War in the 20th century. 
who has done this and he has produced a vast amount of books. Now, I've got quite a few of these books uh, on my shelf, most of which I've read, but there's quite a number that, that I haven't got to yet. I, I haven't read his Goebbels Mastermind, the Third Reich. Um, I haven't got through his one on, on Himmler. Uh, he's also got the Diaries of Canaris. Uh, he's uh, published the uh, Diaries and Memoirs of uh, General Galen and Field Marshal Keitel. Um, he's uh, produced the Trail of the Fox, which I've read somewhat on Erwin uh, uh, Rommel, um, the uh, Uprising, which is phenomenal on on uh, the uh, uprising in in Hungary in 1956. Uh, he's he published the direct the uh, diaries of Hitler's doctor, Dr. Morell, which is intriguing. Um, he also uh, produced a book on the death of General Sikorsky, 1943, 4th of July, the head of the Polish government in exile, commander-in-chief of the Polish army, the Free, free Poles, uh, General Sikorsky was demanding an international investigation into the Katyn forest massacre, which obviously the Soviets uh, performed in, in Katyn. And uh, because of this, uh, there was some correspondence which is still sealed as ultra-stop top secret between Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of America, and Prime Minister of Britain, Winston Churchill. And shortly after that, uh, General Sikorsky and his entire high command, all of his staff, including his daughter, died in an extremely suspicious aircraft accident where the only survivor was the pilot. And uh, it was a setup. It was Gibraltar, 4th of July, 1943. And so he's written on the death of General Sikorsky, which my Polish friends to this day are convinced was murder, was assassination. There's a lot of evidence for that. Uh, he, he's also written books on the German atomic bomb, uh, he's written on the Mayor's Nest and the Virus House, speaking about uh, all the production of the uh, V1, V2 uh, rocket program. Uh, the Virus House is about nerve gas agents that Germany had the capability of but never used. And uh, the Morgenthau Plan, uh, Hess, the Missing Years. So he's uh, he's written a huge amount of books, a major biography on Hermann Goering, which I have not read uh, yet. Uh, so uh, I don't know anyone who's written, researched, and published as much on the Second World War, and who understands primary source document language, and uh, his accomplishments in terms of trying to uncover real history about Second World War is monumental. And it's sad that he's been targeted uh, by uh, hate mongers uh, who are trying to besmirch his integrity and his uh, sincerity, uh, because they can't seem to deal with his research. And so, you know, ad hominem arguments, you can't deal with issues, you attack the, the um, messenger. And that's basically what's happened with uh, David Irving. I think he's a magnificent writer, a fascinating writer, and uh, a, a an engaging, interesting speaker at the lectures that I've heard of his. I would recommend his books to anyone. Of course, they are uh, often hard to, to obtain, and uh, they are somewhat expensive, perhaps, um, because uh, you can't get them through normal channels easily, but they are well worth supporting. And I don't think we can understand the Second World War accurately without delving into David Irving's books, particularly Churchill's War and Hitler's War and the destruction of Dresden. I think those are some of the most important contributions to understand the Second World War that I've read so far. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you so much, Peter. And just one little addendum, of course, um, David Irving was uh, involved in the debunking of the Hitler diaries in the early 1980s. And I remember a presentation of his that I saw. And he said, the funny thing is, with, with research, is you can sometimes miss the obvious things. He said, um, you know, w you see these volumes, 60 volumes that's supposed to have made up the Hitler diaries. And uh, they're all identical, as if he went to a shop one day and said, please give me 60 volumes, I'm going to write a diary. Well, as we all know, you know, when you buy a diary each year, even if you get it from the same source, it's generally slightly different uh, design and what have you every year. Um, and so it was little things like that that he brought out, and I think that was extremely important when he debunked that. And I understand that, um, you know, some people who were behind the fraud served jail time, a lot of newspaper editors lost their jobs because they bought into it. So he upset a lot of people when he was able to reveal that that was a fraud. Anyway, before we go, yes. Peter, can you, uh, any comments on that? And please close out with your yes, website. Yes, I remember talking about it at the time. I mean, that had happened in 1983. You know, there, uh, Stern had purchased all 61 volumes at 9 million Deutschmark, and they were publishing excerpts on this. <laughs> and people all over the world were, wow, this is incredible, and Hugh Trevor Rope and a whole lot of others. Uh, this is just outstanding, and this is definitely genuine. And uh, along comes David Irving, and he proves the obvious, which was staring everyone in the face. No wonder they hated him so much more. And he, it was proved. He's he completely right, and this is a, a, a fraudulent... Um, th and just the size of the fraud, as you said, who goes, who on earth, and he was itinerant a lot of his early life, uh, who could possibly buy all these diaries all from the same shop and then keep them for so many years? He didn't know how long he'd live. So uh, absolutely extraordinary uh, analyst. And uh, I think uh, his upsetting uh, the apple cart with exposing the Hitler diaries as a fraud uh, really um, won for him quite a few enemies. Thank you so much, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know uh, your website and how they can contact you? Yes, so my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, and our mission address is our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. I give regular lectures, the Reformation Society, and you can see some audios and videos and the PowerPoints of those on the FrontlineMissionSA.org website. Thank you so much, Andrew, for all that you do to give us the other side. Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic information as always. Folks, you have been listening to The Real History you can find in the books of David Irving. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I will be back with you all next week. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye. <laughs>